Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity title, Part 2, Improving Risk-Based Management Decisions in Follicular Lymphoma, is provided by Access Medical Education and Q-Synthesis and supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome everybody to this um, seminar this morning. This is uh, part two of our series and we'll be focusing today on uh, relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. So our objective overall would be that at the end of this um, session that the uh, participants will be able to um, select uh, appropriate treatment options for patients with follicular lymphoma. Uh, upon relapse um, and and then integrate uh, shared decision making as part of uh, indi individualized treatment um, to improve patient outcomes and quality of life. So with that, I will move into this uh, brief recap of part one, which was uh, focused on uh, frontline therapy. So um, these are the main, I think, um, takeaways from the frontline therapy um, talk. We, we did uh, discuss about uh, some prognostic systems um, at the, which are applied at the time of diagnosis, such as the FLIPI score, FLIPI2, Prima PI, and M7 FLIPI. We discussed the GELT criteria, which are the most commonly used criteria to decide whether patients um, actually require treatment. Um, I presented some data, which is now uh, fairly old data, but just to remind people that there were uh, four randomized trials adding rituximab to CHOP-like therapy, and all of those studies showed PFS benefit, and three out of four of those studies showed a survival benefit, so really uh, solidly securing um, anti-CD20 as part of uh, first-line therapy when combined with chemotherapy. Uh, we, we discussed data showing that our CHOP outperforms our CVP and our fludarabine and uh, discussed why fludarabine regimens are no longer commonly given, even though they are active in flip lymphoma. There's a lot of T-cell depletion, um, secondary malignancy risk, and um, depletion of bone marrow reserve, which can compromise options later. Um, <laughs> Rituximab bendamustine, which has become a very common first-line regimen in a couple studies now has shown uh, non-inferiority to RCHOP in terms of efficacy and um, arguably a, a more favorable side effect profile. There's, we talked about some rituxan maintenance data, which shows improved PFS, but not improved OS after RCHOP. After chop, this has been extrapolated to other induction regimens. And then, um, Talked about some newer data in which uh, obinutuzumab combined with chemotherapy and then given as maintenance, and in which that strategy was shown to be superior to um, rituximab chemo followed by rituximab maintenance in terms of progression-free survival and also in terms of how many patients progress within two years. That's this concept of POD24, which I'll get to in a second here. Um, and then the R-squared regimen, revlimid or lenalidomide with rituximab, uh, is a frontline study that showed 
very comparable PFS and OS to uh, our chemo, but technically, um, because it was designed as a superiority study, was was uh, did not achieve superiority, so it has not um, been given a frontline indication, even though that data it did look quite comparable in that study. So this concept of uh, POD24, or progression of disease 24, was an important theme from the first talk. And um, I won't read through all of this other than to summarize that there are now several studies showing that about 20% of patients will have um, POD24. And that if you look at the bottom right, that in those 20 patients who experience POD24, about there's only about 50% survival at five years moving forward versus 90% if they don't have a POD24 event. <clears throat> this graph is showing that um, you can use the FLIPI score at the time of diagnosis to uh, predict the risk of POD24 ranges from about 10 to 35%, with the average being about 20% risk of POD24, but if you have a high high flippy patient to begin with, they will have a higher risk of POD24. So this is probably our best way to try to predict what any individual patient's risk of its experiencing POD24 is. And, and part of the reason that, in addition to being prognostic, part of the reason that this concept of POD24 is so important that um, and I just want to point out that I, I noticed last night there's a typo on this slide on the graph here where it says 60 versus 67. It should actually say 60 versus 73%. Um, and so what, what happened in this study is they took um, two different databases. So one is the LymphoCare database in which patients had POD24 and did, for the most part, did not receive transplants as their next line of therapy. That's the no HCT curve. And then we pulled um, a separate group out of the CIBMTR database looking at for patients who had experienced POD24 and then underwent a transplant, primarily autotransplant, within a year of that POD24 event. And you can see that the survival actually was significantly better, 13% absolute improvement in survival. So if we have a POD24 patient, these are patients who we do think about transplant on. And so I think that the concept of POD24 is important in that regard, but also thinking about it more on the front end and more proactively as to how can we, what types of things can we do to prevent a patient from having POD24 so that we don't have to think about a transplant for them um, early into their disease course. So, um, so those are really the important takeaways, I think, from the, the part one. And with that, I'll transition here into the uh, the main um, discussion of relapse refractory disease in the, in the modern era. So if you look from a prognostic standpoint at several recent uh, randomized clinical trials, um, and if we think about non-transplant therapies for relapse refractory patients, the three-year survival varies pretty widely anywhere from about 50 to 90% at three years. And this is in part because the population in these trials is, uh, can, can differ uh, significantly. You might have uh, one trial where patients are mostly second and third line, and then another, another trial where there's a lot of patients who are uh, third, fourth, or even fifth line. 
And so you're going to see a difference in prognosis there. But on average, it's about uh, 70 to 80% survival at three years. So once patients have uh, relapse or um, progression, um, it's, uh, the disease has now become a, a bigger issue for them. And, you know, a lot of people think about follicular lymphoma as kind of no big deal. And, and for some patients, it, you know, which although it's kind of um, might sound cavalier to think about a malignancy as no big deal, for some patients, it, it does turn out to not be that big of a deal if they don't really require much treatment over 10, 10 or more years. And if they, you know, get old and end up dying from some other cause, then in the end, follicular lymphoma was a back burner issue. But for these patients, especially younger patients who experience early relapse, uh, this is definitely uh, something that could shorten their life. So, um, and I mentioned previously that having a POD 24 event, now moving forward, their, their five-year survival is only about 50%. So, um, I won't rehash the CIVMCR lymphocare study that we just talked about. Um, and uh, so, so think about that, that with non-transplant therapy, we can expect about maybe 70, 80% survival at three years. So when we start to think about treatment options, I would break them into two kind of um, large categories. One are transplant approaches, and then there's all the non-transplant approaches. So, so in the next few slides, I'll summarize the transplant data, both auto and allo, and then and then we'll spend the, you know the majority of the time talking about non-transplant options since there are several to to get through, uh, and those can include rituximab-based regimens, obinutuzumab-based regimens. There is still a radioimmunotherapy agent available, um, Zevalin, uh, which is I would say not being used maybe quite as much as it used to, but it is still available and, and helpful in some cases. There are lenalidomide-based regimens. Uh, there's a number of PI3 kinase inhibitors available, a new EZH2 inhibitor called uh, Tazimidostat, and then there's some really uh, exciting investigational options, in particular CAR T-cell and bispecific antibodies. Um, and then I'll try to uh, discuss patient and disease characteristics that could inform optimal sequencing um, as we go as well. So, so that's, that's a lot of options. So, you know, I like to think about our um, arsenal of, of therapies for uh, relapse refractory follicular lymphoma as a toolbox. Uh, we have quite a few different tools. And um, I, I find a relapse refractory follicular lymphoma consult to be one of the uh, more challenging um, lymphoma consults because, not because we don't have options, but because we have quite a few options, which is a good thing, but it makes the um, decision-making a little more complicated um, and really requires individualization. So, you know, uh, just as an example, if I have a 40-year-old uh, who's had uh, POD24, I'm going to be thinking, here's a patient um, where lymphoma is really the biggest issue for that person and could easily end up shortening their life significantly. So we're going to be thinking more aggressively for a patient like that uh, and maybe thinking about a transplant or something a little more innovative 
whereas if we have an 80-year-old who had a, a later relapse, um, we will be thinking about lower-intensity uh, therapies and really focusing a lot on trying to um, have efficacy but avoid toxicity for a patient like that. We do also have to bear in mind drug interactions. Uh, what is the goal of therapy for the patient? Um, what kind of comorbidities and frailty are we dealing with? Uh, logistical issues like, you know, how often will the patient need to come to the infusion center? Can they get rides? All this kind of uh, information plays into the decision making here. We also, as I kind of alluded to uh, earlier, we don't want to burn bridges. So uh, some of the treatments that we might give um, now could compromise our ability to do certain other treatments later. And so, uh, for example, if we give somebody uh, bendamustine um, now, and it turned out that we wanted to think about CAR T-cell for them a few months later, uh, that may not be a, um, an option because of the how lymphodepleting bendamustine is a great follicular lymphoma drug, but it does deplete lymphocytes significantly, and you need uh, you need T cells in order to make CAR T cells. So that's just one example. But um, so we do need to think about that, uh, keeping our options open uh, for later. So a couple slides about uh, stem cell transplant options. So this is a uh, um, a little piece that I wrote for the ASCO post. Uh, Jim Armitage had asked me to do this back in 2013, and and then, you know, the the whole point of the article was that stem cell transplant is really underutilized in follicular lymphoma. And in the article, I go through reasons why that might be, but probably uh, I estimated that maybe only. 10% of the patients who could be um, candidates for transplant actually ever received a transplant for follicular lymphoma. And if you look at the outcomes with the auto transplant, we have probably about 50% of the patients who are still in remission three to five years later. And if the patient is in remission at, at five years, the majority of them will still be in remission at 10, even 15 minutes. Uh, years later. So um, with treatment-related mortality, that really should be in the 1% or 2% range at experienced centers. So there really is not any other, at that time, especially any other non-transplant therapy that could offer that. And with a non-myeloblative allotransplant, uh, we see even better uh, lymphoma control. There are some additional risks there with the treatment-related mortality now in the 10 to 15% range at experienced centers. And now you do have some risks of graft versus host disease. But in terms of disease control, there's really no other um, treatments that can, um, that can boast that type of uh, anti-lymphoma activity. And so I think um, in the, for some patients, the idea of having kind of a one and done treatment is, is attractive and might actually even be cheaper in the long run rather than having them on various therapies for many years. So we really want to think about transplant on certain people. I mentioned those with POD24. And also, even patients who are kind of getting into their third, fourth, fifth line of therapy, especially if their responses are, are, have been short. Um, and then the last group I would think about transplant on are those who have 
already had an RCHOP-like regimen and now are, have experienced a histologic transformation. So you don't really have the room to give them a whole other course of anthracycline-based therapy. Uh, these are patients that uh, we can um, achieve long-term remission with transplant and avoid uh, additional anthracycline. So I would say those are the sort of the takeaways as far as who, who should you bear in mind as uh, potentially um, sending for a transplant referral. So the remainder of the talk here, we'll talk about um, non-transplant options for relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. And uh, we'll start with single-agent rituximab. So this is one uh, older study looking at single-agent rituximab. Um, it had a, about a 50% response rate, and uh, median duration of response was about a year. And if, and if we look at more recent studies, uh, in which rituximab single agent was a control arm, um, which is, say, like the uh, rituximab versus R-squared study, which I'll show in a minute, um, and others where rituximab was a control arm, we again see uh, median PFS around um, about a year. So the problem, though, is many patients will be rituximab resistant now um, because, and that's defined as if they, if they never re responded at all or had no response to a rituximab-containing regimen, progressed while on rituximab or within six months of rituximab. So if you have somebody who progresses while they're on maintenance rituximab, that patient really, um, by definition, is rituximab-resistant. And I, we would not expect to see uh, results in this um, ballpark for a patient who's already re resistant. Now, obinutuzumab is a, is a newer um, glycoengineered uh, CD20 monoclonal antibody, which has increased antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, as well as complement-mediated cytotoxicity. And this is um, approved for relapse refractory follicular lymphoma in combination with uh, bendamustine. In the study that uh, got the approval um, it's called the uh, Gadolin trial, and this was uh, looked at patients who had rituximab-resistant indolent lymphoma, mostly follicular lymphoma, and it was bendamustine alone, and the argument for that control arm was that these are rituximab-resistant patients, so it was a, uh, a reasonable uh, standard of care to not include rituximab for those patients. Um, and the uh, experimental arm was bendamustine plus obinutuzumab, obinutuzumab given with induction as well as, as maintenance. And you can see from the upper panel, there was a significant PFS benefit favoring the benda-obinutuzumab arm, and, um, but there was not a survival benefit seen, which is a common theme in many follicular lymphoma studies. And uh, the uh, PFS was not reached in the, in the BO arm and it was about uh, 15 months in the bendamustine alone arm. There are some toxicities that one needs to watch for with bendamustine obinutuzumab regimen, and um, actually, interestingly, the majority of those toxicities come in during the maintenance phase, so that is something to bear in mind, uh, that people can have um, primarily infectious complications that we really need Sometimes we think about people being on maintenance as no big deal, like, well, they're not really on chemo. 
Um, and so if they have a cough or some other upper respiratory symptoms, I really have to sort of um, kind of harp on this with my clinic staff that, you know, those are – those are our problems to deal with. Those are not, uh, oh, call your primary care because you're not really on chemo. These, these patients need to be thought of as um, immunocompromised, and, and, and we need to be the ones to deal with that, in my opinion. So, But it is an active, very active regimen. I use it in patients with relapsed refractory foot lymphoma, and I've had um, good results in, in, in many patients. So uh, radioimmunotherapy. There, there used to be two agents available. There was Vexar, which is no longer on the market, but we still have uh, Zevalin or Ibritumumab, Tioxetan. Um, and in this trial of, uh, um, this was a relapsed uh, follicular lymphoma, and it was randomized versus uh, single-agent rituximab, the overall response rate did favor um, the Zevalin. And in follicular lymphoma patients, there was a statistically significant benefit in terms of overall response, and the median duration of response was a bit longer, 14 versus 12 months. Um, and there's a separate study specifically in rituximab-resistant patients where they still saw a 74% response rate, um, although the duration of response was a little shorter at nine months. So uh, so this is still a, a tool to, to kind of think about as, we do still have this one in the toolbox, and it can work even in rituxin-resistant patients. Um, now, thinking about some uh, newer agents, such as lenalidomide plus uh, rituximab, or often referred to as the R-squared regimen, um, this is a randomized prospective trial called the AUGMENT trial, in which rituximab was the control arm, and people got eight, a total of eight doses of rituximab, so weekly times four, then cycle two, day one dose, and then monthly for um, cycles uh, three, four, and five. And then uh, the lenalidomide arm, they received a standard day one through 21 of len, except it was at 20 milligrams as opposed to the standard 25 milligrams. There was some higher rates of neutropenia in the R-squared group, but really no other grade three to four toxicities that differed by more than 5%. And there was a very uh, significant PFS benefit, median PFS 39 versus 14 months in favor of the R-squared arm. And this benefit was really uh, limited to the follicular lymphoma patients, uh, did not see a survival benefit um, yet, as you can see from the bottom panel, although in the subgroup analysis, there did appear to be a survival benefit potentially in the follicular lymphoma patients. So, um, so this is also a very... Uh, active and um, for the patients, uh, sort of a fairly easy regimen to give. I, I would say there's a little less uh, risk in terms of opportunistic infections compared to BO, but um, potentially maybe slightly higher risk of some of the, the well-known um, toxicities that can come with uh, lenalidomide, um, including uh, having to watch for um, late effects like um, secondary um, malignancies, which is part of the reason why they limited it to a one year of lenalidomide here. So so there's a, another very active regimen. Uh, lenalidomide has also been combined with obinutuzumab, um, again, uh, 20 milligrams with the lenalidomide dose. 
the dosing of the obinutuzumab um, was uh, a little bit different in that you give three weekly doses on cycle one, then one per cycle. And this, uh, the amount of antibody given was, was more in this study compared to the, the, the augment study. Um, and at uh, two years, a PFS of 65%. And if you looked at the subset who had, who came into the study having already experienced POD24, uh, the two-year PFS actually was about the same as in the whole group, 62%, and uh, two-year survival of 83%, possibly um, a bit better than one would expect for POD24 patients. Um, so this is uh, also an option um, which we do use in some cases, particularly in patients who are rituximab refractory. I think about this as a, a more attractive um, in that uh, we are using a different anti-CD20 um, than rituximab there. So PI3 kinase inhibitors, there are a number of, uh up the time here, I think I wrap up in about five minutes. So we have a number of PI3 kinase inhibitors. Uh, there's idelalisib, which is a PI3 kinase delta inhibitor. There are, um, this, this agent had an overall response rate of uh, 57% and median uh, PFS around 11 months of note. Uh, this class of drug, this drug in particular, has a black box warning because there were some cases of uh, transaminitis, uh, colitis, and pneumonitis, and, and idelalisib can have some interaction with other drugs, particularly CYP3. Uh, a4 inhibitors. So uh, there's also copanlisib, which is an IV PI3 kinase inhibitor that hits the alpha and delta isoforms. So it has um, very similar activity. I won't read through it here in the interest of time, but a different toxicity profile. You see transient hyperglycemia and transient hypertension. Transient meaning like the day that they get the infusion, maybe a little bit into the next day. And um, but it is IV. They need to come three weeks on, one week off, and that um, can be sometimes an issue for some folks making, you know, coming three times a month for a, a one-hour IV infusion. But very similar efficacy. Uh, there's another oral PI3 kinase inhibitor, duvalisib, which hits. Um, so the du stands for dual um, isoform inhibition of both delta and gamma. Um, this is a twice-daily oral agent. Again, approximately 50% response rate, median duration of response uh, just under a year. Um, I would say potentially it looks like slightly lower rates of transaminitis um, and pneumonitis, maybe similar rates of colitis also can have some drug interactions, as noted there. And then coming, we think coming soon is a fourth PI3 kinase inhibitor oral one it hits delta, and it's called umbralisib. And this uh, appears maybe to have a somewhat differentiated side effect profile, so pretty low rates of colitis, very low rate of transaminitis, as well as um, pneumonitis. So it does not have as much in the way of drug interaction. So this, this could end up emerging as a more uh, maybe um, potentially a preferred agent within the class. Here's a table that we made that kind of summarizes these four agents, which isoform is hit, the dosing, 
can see the response rates are all kind of in the 50-ish percent range with uh, PFS uh, just under a year. And I've uh, kind of highlighted in orange the agents that seem to have lower rates of some of these um, uh, toxicities that, that we mentioned. So, um, so that class is important and uh, kind of a crowded space with, with so many agents. Now, there's a newer drug that blocks EZH2, which uh, and that drug is called tazimidostat. EZH2 is a, a histone methyltransferase, which um, normally plays a role in preventing differentiation of germinal center B cells. And um, there are, you can see mutations in EZH2 in about 20% of follicular lymphoma. So tazimidostat is a selective oral inhibitor of EZH2, which was recently approved. And you can see the response rate was 34% in the wild-type EZH2 group, but 74% in the mutated EZH2 group. So you have to get a, a tissue specimen and do a sequencing analysis on EZH2 um, and to determine if your patient is in that mutated group. So just finishing up with some uh, in, in investigational or emerging options. Uh, BTK inhibitors have been looked at in relapse refractory follicular lymphoma. None are approved in that space. Um, I won't go through the data in detail in the interest of time, other than to say that the data with the brutinib and acalabrutinib has been somewhat disappointing with response rates more in the 20-30% range. Uh, possibly the new brutinib may be a, a bit more active in this setting, although um, Mechanistically, it doesn't really make sense why it would be, but there is a trial ongoing in combination with obinutuzumab, <clears throat> so we'll have to see how that turns out. This this is not a class of agents that I personally use a lot in relapsed follicular lymphoma because of all the other options. Uh, Venetoclax also, there's been some interesting data. Most of it is in this combination with bendamustine and rituximab, and again, in the interest of time, I'll just kind of cut to the chase that while that the combination looked active. It didn't, wasn't clearly more active than bendamustine rituximab alone, and there was certainly more toxicity. So, um, again, the venetoclax is not a drug, even though in principle it makes a lot of sense since it blocks BCL2, and 85% of follicular lymphomas will have translocation 1418 resulting in overexpression of BCL2. Um, in practice, at least this combination, I, I don't find um, compelling yet, but there are other combinations that venetoclax is being explored in. Uh, potentially more exciting, I would say, is some recent data in, uh, using CAR T-cell. Um, in particular, at the bottom, the Zuma-5 study using execaptogene or Yescarta, which presented at ASCO this summer, where they had a CR rate of 80%, um, and the other agents that are furthest along, uh, Kizacel or Kimraya and Lysacel also had very high, like 70-80% CR rates with a number of patients uh, maintaining remission one to two years later. So it'll be really, I think, exciting to see, first of all, whether one of these comes to market. See, none of these are approved yet commercially for follicular lymphoma, um, although we think um, Axicel may, may be the first there and it'll be interesting to see longer-term data. Uh, lastly, there are a number of bispecific antibodies or bites which are being looked at in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. 
these are bispecific T-cell engagers in, in which one side of the antibody binds CD20 on the malignant B cell, the other side binds CD3, which basically brings the um, cytotoxic T cell into proximity with the malignant B cell and facilitate uh, um, um, cellular cytotoxicity. And uh, mosinatuzumab is also a, a drug from Regeneron and another one from Genmab, and these all have shown activity. Um, even in patients who had already uh, progressed after CD19 CAR T cells. So I think this is another space to watch, although none of these are com commercially available at the moment. So with that, I will uh, close on the didactic session, um, but we will f uh, finish here with a quick case study. Uh, so this is a 74-year-old male who was diagnosed at um, Nine years earlier, with a uh, low-grade follicular lymphoma, he was observed for a couple of years, um, and then because of progressive adenopathy and fatigue, was treated with bendamustine and rituxan times six, achieved a complete remission, and then was given two years of maintenance. And then four years after that, so um, so now the patient is um, about 74 apparently, and uh, has recurrent adenopathy. On imaging, uh, SUVs are, are low. Repeat biopsy confirms it's still grade two. Follicular lymphoma, which is a good idea to confirm that when there's been a long interval like that, make sure they haven't transformed. And the question is, what would the appropriate next treatment steps be? And options being listed as R squared, a PI3 kinase inhibitor, repeat BR, obinutuzumab plus rituximab, or an auto transplant. So. I think um, probably the, the, the most appropriate option here would be LEN plus rituximab. Um, we wouldn't do autotransplant given his age and the fact that he did not have POD24. Obinutuzumab plus rituximab is not uh, really an, an approved combination um, that's really been looked at. It, to do bendamustine rituximab all over again, could be done since he did have a long first remission, but that's going to create a lot of opportunistic infection risk and uh, T-cell depletion. And at 74, we might think about CAR T-cell on a protocol for someone like that, and I wouldn't want to burn that bridge with bendamustine. PI3 kinase inhibitors could be given, although in terms of PFS, you're going to have, uh, comparing across studies, what appears uh, to be better uh, with LEN plus rituximab. So the patient gets LEN plus rituximab, has a two-and-a-half-year response, then relapses again, and so same options would be considered in that setting. I'd probably think about a PI3 kinase inhibitor. So, um, so key takeaways, we talked about prognosis of follicular lymphoma, especially um, concerning if they have, PO, if they have had POD24 after first-line therapy. Uh, there's a number of regimens we talked about. Um, including some exciting new ones coming down the pipeline. And we uh, need to really customize our treatment selection for these patients. Access Medical Education would like to thank our faculty for that excellent presentation and for their dedication to quality continuing professional development. And we thank each of you for your participation. Good day. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education and Q-Synthesis. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation 
at ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.